Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 102 of the Our Weekly Holidays podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and we are closing up the year, rapidly approaching, but we're not closing up our awesome looks at the R Weekly highlights for the week. And, you know, can never, ever, ever do this anymore without my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how have you been today? I've been great, Eric, trying to balance uh, working on one screen while watching the World Cup on the other screen, and, and so far, going pretty well. Yes, I was watching some World Cup action at my kids' uh, practice yesterday for the uh, the USA game. If, if when you're listening to this, and a lot of people were glued to the TVs on that one while kids are randomly skating the figure eights around the ice. So yeah, interesting atmosphere nonetheless. <laughs> Good stuff. And yeah, if, if you're enjoying the World Cup out there, or you're more enjoying the art content, we have a little bit of everything today, as we always do. And our issue this week has been curated by Tony Elhabar, one of my um, great uh, colleagues on the R Weekly team that I met in person at our studio conference earlier this year. Lots of fun conversations there. And as always, thank you to Tony. And also thanks to all of you around the world for your poll requests and contributions to R Weekly and for our fellow curators. So let's dive right into it. So I've always felt spoiled enough as thinking about developing packages just by the existence of reliable and time-saving packages such as use this and dev tools that eliminate so much of the manual effort that I've had and pain points when I created an R package from scratch. Now, even with those powerful helpers, we are starting to see, I would say, some trends in the last year, especially as we've been doing this podcast, more examples of additional packages in the R ecosystem that can even put a little bit of extra on top, a little extra bit of help that takes this experience to another level and give you less excuses to potentially put off that extra bit of development that maybe you were dreading. Case in point, test. Yes, I said it, test. Sometimes in my past experience, the thing I wait till the very end to bolt onto my packages, I admit I'm being honest here, now, I'm trying to be more prospective on it. Now, of course, we're very familiar with test that. That's certainly not going away. But there's another interesting aspect to how you could get those tests generated while you are also following a good practice of developing your examples of how your functions work in a package. And that's where our first highlight comes in with the doc test package, version 0.1 that was just released by David Hugh Jones, who's associate professor in the School of Economics at the University of East Anglia. And what's interesting about this is that if you've been following best practices with dev tools and the like, you've likely been writing your documentation of a function with our oxygen tags, where you put the little at param and the description of the parameter and all that. Well, what doc test gives you is another our oxygen tag to start building in your test cases. That seems kind of mind-blowing to me, but it actually works. I don't know, are you as amazed about this as I am? There's a lot of magic at play here, and, and I was absolutely blown away by this package. I guess I didn't realize that other languages like Python and Rust already have this built in, but as you said, DocTest enables you to write code and tags in your R Oxygen documentation that automatically generate unit tests. It's incredible. 
Um, this package stock test isn't on Korean yet, so install the dev version from GitHub and, and give it a whirl. But the, uh, the, the GitHub page within the README as well as the vignettes and the package down site have some great examples that, that make it pretty clear how exactly you would do this. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. These tags that you would include look a lot like the tests that you would write in, in uh, test that. Um, I see myself using doc test as a huge efficiency gain tool for functions that have a couple simple tests. Perhaps uh, I'm not sure I'm entirely sold on using it for functions that have more and especially more complex testing logic where I'm you know, having to do some sort of uh, random sampling and, and, and ensuring distributions or, or things like that in my test. But it seems like that could be difficult to do entirely with just these Roxygen tags. But if I'm not mistaken, I think I could use kind of a hybrid approach and only use doc test on the functions where I choose to use it while going maybe the traditional or manual testing route on other functions and not including the, the Roxygen tag doc test, but just writing up the full uh, full testing logic within my own test that uh, file. So pretty incredible. Nice to, to see that this is covered in the highlights. Again, version 1.0, um, 98% code coverage. So in a uh-huh. testing related package, it's, it's great to see <laughs> such good code coverage. Um, and I'm very excited to watch this and, and see where it goes. And I will absolutely be one of the users pulling down the, the dev version here from GitHub and playing around with it and, and seeing, uh, seeing how much efficiency I can gain here. And it definitely encourage our listeners to do the same. Yeah. And one great point you made is that this is not an all or nothing thing, right? I mean, you can definitely, the way I view it as similar to you, my, my package will likely have some utility functions that are definitely more nimble or, or a little less, you know, big in scope where your tests are going to be written pretty concisely. And that's where doc tests, I think, could be a huge help there. But then if you have a more sophisticated function that maybe is doing an API call or anything like that, you can still opt to do it the quote unquote old fashioned way with test that you're not confined to doing all of one approach or all of the other. And that's, that's a microcosm of a lot of the way these package helpers work. You can take the bits you want. Like, I don't have to use the wrappers to generate data for my package, but I want to maybe from use this and the like. But this, I think there's going to be cases where you would get overwhelmed pretty quickly for a more sophisticated uh, code around your test case. But I think, again, having another easier entry point to a best practice is stuff that really helps you as a developer, especially new to package development, make that leap a little bit easier. And then as you get more experience and you can choose to stick with it, you can choose to go full bore, test that, or do the hybrid like I'm talking about. So I think for my next internal package I make, I'm gonna take a hybrid approach with doc tests as it matures and hopefully gets a grand release. Or, or our universe release in the near future, and then I'll start using that in, in bigger projects. But certainly, great time to play with it, great time to get feedback as always. And that's, of course, the virtue of open source with having all these available at our, at our disposal for lots of use cases. So really well done. Um, hopefully, uh, this will get some good reception and certainly happy to see it. Absolutely. There's a couple of nuances maybe I'll, I'll throw out there that if you want to use DocTest, 
in your package, uh, you should alter your package's description file um, to add the DT underscore rocklet to Roxygen, um, as well as add doc test to, to the suggests as a dependency in your package. That's what's recommended here. So as you get started with this, maybe keep that in mind as well. Very good. And that's always seemed magic too, kind of the things you can put in that description file to just kind of instruct how a package imports these resources. That's something I'm going to try and learn about next year because I've seen this, you know, many approaches with just our oxygen in general, but in other things, like even RM has some flags you can put in there too. So that's another rabbit hole that I'm going to go down one way or another next year for sure. Yes, absolutely. Love the, uh, reminds me of the attachment package that is used in Gollum to amend the description files with the dependencies that just get read from parsing the code within your package uh, saves me an outrageous amount of time. Oh yeah, you can you can never quantify the, the awesome savings you get for you know taking away a lot of this manual effort. And another way you might be able to take away manual effort is we've mentioned many times on this podcast before, but you know, it's 2022. Those, that data you want is probably not going to be on the CSV file all the time. We're seeing a rich amount of resources of data available on the web. And one way to get that is for some good old fashioned scraping. Scraping is the art of using either programming or tools or a combo of both to take what's being served on a website. Maybe it's a table of data. Maybe it's a list of things, massaging a little bit, importing it into your favorite language and crunching out your data science skills with it. And that's where our next highlight comes in, where you might have a case where the data is not just being served in a quote unquote static way, you might think of a page on Wikipedia, for example, that has like a little table there of maybe, I don't know, country flags or whatever have you. And you can use traditional packages like um, HTTR or um, RVEST to interrogate that. Or if it has an API, that's definitely the, a great approach there too. But you don't always get that sometimes. Sometimes those pages have hidden away Behind that glitzy little table they serve up on the web page, some JavaScript magic to pull that data in. That's where you gotta go a little bit outside the box, and that's where a package called our Selenium comes in. I've had a lot of experience with this, so I'll be sharing my thoughts shortly. But what we're talking about here is a great slide deck made by Atin Bakker. Hopefully, I'm saying that right. A PhD student from Lisser Luxembourg with a really comprehensive tutorial about not just what our Selenium is, but why you would want to use it and maybe a couple pitfalls along the way. So maybe you could dive through this, Mike. What did you learn from Etienne's presentation here? This is a really holistic uh, blog post covering just about every aspect of web scraping in R that I can think of. It's actually not a blog post. It's a, it's a slide deck um, that appears to be made with Cordo beautiful there you go um, <laughs> portal all the time now <laughs> yes so i always appreciate you know any sort of educational content that doesn't assume uh you already have everything installed and etienne calls out the fact that you may have installation issues 
that you have to hurdle before you can get going with our selenium. Um, and he does a really nice job of explaining the different workarounds. You can try to troubleshoot any of the issues that you run into around uh, ensuring that you have JavaScript installed on your machine, ensuring that you have administrative access to Firefox, if that's the browser that you decide to use uh, for, for automated scraping purposes. And like you said, Eric, if the site is static, Arvest might be all you need in terms of packages. But if the site is dynamic, where it does have those JavaScript bells and whistles, um, you are likely going to need our Selenium to interact with the page. And you can do just about anything with our Selenium that you could do manually in terms of scrolling down a page, uh, going back or forward on a site, uh, clicking on a button or a link, uh, editing a text box, adding text or, or navigating, interacting with a particular widget on that page. So it, it is pretty incredible. It does feel like magic. If you've never done any web scraping before with our Selenium, um, it, it does feel like magic that you are programmatically interacting with the web page. So this uh, slide deck is loaded with excellent examples and use cases involving both static and dynamic sites, scraping both static and dynamic sites. There are even links to additional blog posts around web scraping with Arselenium, um, particularly some around parallel scraping that I saw, like utilizing multiple browsers simultaneously, something that I've never tried before, but I do have some long, uh, long running scraping jobs that might be interesting use cases for taking a look at parallel scraping. And one of those, I, I will shout out, one of those links is to Ivan Mullane's blog post from 2020 on web scraping with our Selenium and our Vest. Ivan is a very good friend of mine and a brilliant uh, R developer. And we will link to that blog post as well in the show notes. But it's really nice to see Eddie and not only including a ton of fantastic content that he developed himself, but also referencing uh, some of the other folks in this space who have written educational content on web scraping with R as well. So it's it's definitely a resource that I think belongs maybe in the, the big book of R <laughs> or belongs wherever you store um, important R resources that you come across beyond just uh, your, your Mastodon or Twitter favorites button. You bet. And also with R Selenium itself, it uh, was kind of recent, maybe a year ago or so. That's actually been folded into R OpenSci as well. So it's being actively maintained. There was a period where it was a bit stagnant, but now it looks like active development is back. And yeah, I'll, I'll embellish a little bit on what I teased earlier. I have definitely explored Selenium quite a bit as a precursor to like what we know now with Shiny Test a way to test shiny apps and to test other web things I was creating. I admit getting Selenium working in an enterprise environment is painful. At least it was for me. Now, one thing that could help though, you may remember I've been harping on a certain technology that can abstract away a lot of these, you know, niche pain points you might have. You can put Selenium in a Docker container, folks, and not have to deal with the Java nightmares that I had to deal with years ago. So I will also, in addition to what, Mike, you you asked to link in the show notes, I'm also going to link a great tutorial from Callum Taylor 
on putting Selenium in Docker and then using our Selenium to call that instead of a local install. That could be a big help to those of you out there that have shared the pain I've had with getting Java stuff working, especially on Windows machines. Not that I don't know anything about that. <laughs> but you can use containers to your advantage, at least for my case, and that made Selenium a lot more accessible for me. So I'm going to have to read that post as well because my weekly GitHub action that has been running with Selenium flawlessly for the last six to nine months uh, broke this week because there's an GitHub Actions update uh, from Node.js from 12 to version 16, and I am struggling with figuring out how to fix it, if you can't tell, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> there are so many rabbit holes we could go on GitHub Action failures, especially when dependencies are updated without you knowing it. You know me, I, I, I like to have these... Uh, you might say these uh, mental checklists of things I have to build up before I launch these efforts. Well, our last slide is going to give us some checklists to think about. We have a little vi visit to our visualization corner, as always, and mostly on these episodes. And in particular, a uh, very regular contributor these days, Albert Rapp, is back at it again with the visualization roots, so to speak, about a great blog post that he's put together on little you know, might say checklist items that you can have as you're creating that next fancy little bar chart that's summarizing your great data insight. And so this is a very practical post. He literally starts the bar chart from literally the vanilla ggplot2 aesthetic, and it starts to gradually build both things that make it easier to interpret the result, but also ways to present the results in a cleaner way. So what, what kind of items did you resonate with the most here on this checklist, Mike? Yeah, well, first things first, uh, this looks like another great Quarto blog. Shout out Quarto if I haven't done that enough times yet today. So for all the, all, everyone counting out there, there's another Quarto shout out for you. Um, fantastic blog post again. Great walkthrough by Albert Rapp on, on some awesome data viz content. Horizontal bars are greater than vertical bars. Yeah, I said what I said. Hot take. But especially important when you have more than, I'd say, five categories, which I, I often have more than five categories. Invert that access, uh, flip it, and let's let's see those categories on, on the y-axis, please. But data viz is all about communicating the data in the most efficient and effective way possible to the audience. And Albert highlights in this blog post just some great tips for doing that, uh, for bar, bar plots specifically. Um, including bar ordering, taking sort of a, what I would call a minimalistic approach and dropping your access labels in favor of data labels within each bar. Uh, the blog post concludes with, with a pretty interesting bar plot where the labels for both X and Y values are above each individual bar, something that you're, you're probably going to have to check out yourself. So, so check out the issue in, in this particular blog post because it's Tricky to articulate on a podcast again, but as always, you know, Albert includes all of the fantastic code that produces each of the charts um, that he shows as steps along the way towards the final chart in this blog post. And, and I'll note that this is all contained to the tidyverse. There's no additional plotting packages beyond ggplot2 at play here. 
And that's just another example of how far ggplot2 can get us in creating beautiful data visualizations. So kudos, kudos to Albert for continuing to, to just pump out fantastic data viz and our content for us. And this is a really nicely done blog post. Yeah, really enjoyed reading it. And I'm happy to say that even in a unlikely situation, I followed at least some of this advice when I last year created this completely over the top, shiny dashboard to visualize virtual racing league results. It started as a bar chart, ended up being an animated chart of little racing cars. So, but, but it was horizontal. I, I got that one right. <laughs> yes. Appreciate that. The, uh, the cars weren't driving against gravity. Not, not quite. Although they were going backwards. <laughs> That's another story for another day, but yes, that was, <laughs> but it was, it was fun to build that. But again, with respect to this post, everything that you said, Mike, is all achievable, no hacks, no additional packages needed over in a ggplot2. It's it's a great companion to some of the advice we also see from other thought leaders like Cedric Schurer and his many ggplot resources. I think what Albert does here is that this is probably what you're going to start with as you get into the exercise of, okay, I know how to make a chart, but how do I start adding these nice features to make interpretation easier, to make presentation easier. Because again, you never know where these lead to. Maybe this chart's going to go to an executive somewhere. So you got to make sure they can quickly see that main point on the plot. So the the little the little touches here do add up, folks. It, it really does. And even when I made an app last year for work where I was doing ggplots of clinical results, to get to an eventual PowerPoint presentation, I would let the user kind of do these little checklist items if opt into certain things. But yeah, having having awareness of these items and be able to mix and match to your needs, great flexibility that ggplot2 offers and great, great job by Albert to summarize all that up for us. Really, really excellent blog post here as always. And I don't know how he cranks all this stuff out. If he's got some magic pill for time management, I need to I need to take it because I'm not able to crank and nearly the amount of stuff out that he is, but it's really, really well done here. You're not kidding. Yep. And what else we're not kidding about? Another really awesome issue of our weekly that's a broken record at this point. But that's why we do this podcast, right? So really great insights here. And um little find that I had as I was combing through this one that's not on the issue, but I want to call out as well, but I'll get to what's on the issue here is that when I was preparing for you know, the good old days of graduate or university school, I would have these tests, right? I have to memorize certain concepts or it was in stats or computer science and the like. Did you know that now in R you can create flashcards? Yes, you can with the flasher package created by Jeffrey Stevens. Um, I was poking around this a little bit, but it is actually built on top of Reveal.js to give you what are kind of under the hood slides, but a great way to test your knowledge. You know, little nice thing you might want to do next time you're preparing for that really hard exam if you're out there in the schoolwork. I feel you. I remember the graduate school both fondly and not so fondly, especially for those exams. So these are to help your studying. Why not? 
that that's absolutely something that I would do instead of just writing out 10 flashcards in 15 minutes, I would program uh, flashcards using the flasher package for like eight hours, trying to figure out how to get these beautiful flashcards to work and maybe learn some of the content along the way. Yeah, that that's never the fun part, right? It's getting there. <laughs> but um, yeah, and the other thing I want to quickly mention before I turn it back over to Mike is um, our friends at Jumping Rivers have released videos of their recent Shiny in Production conference. And there's about like seven out there at the time of our recording here. So highly recommend checking those out if you're kind of wanting to see how others in the enterprise are using Shiny in very um, important situations. Some great knowledge shared by Colin Fay and others in the community on widget building and comparing different frameworks or web apps. Lots of lots of good content there. But yeah, Mike, what did, what did you find this week? Yeah, so uh, our weekly's own Tony Elhavar created a fantastic gist on GitHub using HTTR package and some tidyverse packages to leverage FIFA's API and show you how to download player-specific or team-specific statistics from the World Cup. So this was an exciting one as a soccer nerd um, and, and data nerd. This was an exciting gist to come across, and I thought it was kind of an interesting, uh, unique entry into our weekly this, this week where you can get your hands dirty with some code that's laid out right in front of you. Very timely, too. We were talking about scraping earlier, so another great way to get your scraping hats on. And luckily for this one, you don't have to worry about custom JavaScript serving those <laughs> results. So your yes. life's a little easier then. And I I wish all these sites would make it easier to access all this. But hey, at least this one does. So great, great gist as always. And also, I um, want to give a quick plug, getting to our kind of feedback segment. We don't have any new feedback per se, but our previous contributor, Rasta Calavera, has actually been boosting the show again, but automatically. You might be wondering, how the heck is that pulled off? That's through one of these new podcast apps called Fountain, where they kind of give you a little budget of these sats to play with. And just by listening to a show, you can contribute any little bit every few minutes or so. So thank you, Rasta, for the extra, I believe, 100 sats from that little automatic contribution. And however way you want to contribute, all you have to do is find yourself on those fancy new podcast apps at newpodcastapps.com. And we'll be glad to hopefully hear from you in the future. But um, also, we want to hear from you for contributing to our weekly itself. You know how you can get your content on there? Well, you go to rweekly.org, first of all, if you don't have a bookmark, bookmark it today so that you can get access to the upcoming draft and send us a little poll request of any great blog post, new package, tutorial out there, whatever have you, any great novel use of data science in R, we're always happy to put that into the next issue. So we're always just a poll request away, folks. And also, if you want to get in touch with us at R Weekly, um, we also have a new uh, Mastodon account. That's at rweekly at fostodon.org. And also, you can get in touch with each of us, your friendly hosts here individually. I am still somewhat on Twitter with at the RCast, but also I am on Mastodon as well with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can they find you? I'm still hanging around on Twitter for the time being as well at Mike underscore Catchbrook. 
And then I am on Nastadon as at Mike underscore Thomas. Uh, let me check my profile. What's the at Fossadon.org at Mike underscore Thomas at Fossadon.org. Yeah, so you can tell we're still getting used to calling these out, but it's going to become second nature sooner or later. But we've been hearing from some of you already on these new avenues. So thank you for the shout outs and certainly stay tuned for more updates in the future. And speaking of the future, well, we're going to have to close up episode 102, but we will be back with episode 103 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast next week.